Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Lighthouse Beacon podcast. My name is Rami Shami, and I'm your host for this podcast. A little background about our organization. We're located in Oakville, Ontario. We offer facilitated grief peer support groups to help children, teens, and their families following a death in their family. Our groups are ongoing and open-ended, which offer each family member an opportunity to participate in their own way. Before we begin, so we acknowledge that the land that I personally am standing on today is a traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. I also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13, signed by the Mississaugas of the Credit, and with the Williams Treaty signed with the multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. And how can we talk about loss and grief without acknowledging the uncovering of Indigenous children in unmarked graves on residential schools across the country. Now, we've launched these podcasts in an effort to create a greater awareness, not only to children's grief support, but especially to the diversity within children's grief. Southern Ontario, where we are located, Edward and I, well, he's not really located there right now, but I am. And I suspect you live in Southern Ontario, right, Edward? I haven't introduced you, but I've already... (laughs) He's he's kind enough to actually be in New York right now and and connecting with us. So, so appreciative of your time, Edward. Southern Ontario, if not all of Canada, especially North America with the settlement and immigration and refugees and and what have you, is, is so incredibly diverse in so many different dimensions. So joining us today, although I haven't yet introduced him, but I'm going to introduce him now, on this Lighthouse Speaking podcast is a brilliant individual with personal and professional experience in grief as it relates to children. So welcome, Edward Joins Stanley. Thank you, Rami. Happy to be here. And where are you right now? Let's just let's just start with that. <laughs> I, I work for Akko Hotels, and so I get to travel around and stay in the hotels as part of my work. Um, it's not as, as fashionable as it sounds because most days I'm stuck in a, in an office or in meetings all day and don't get to walk around and enjoy the city that I'm in. But sometimes I do try. And, you know, that's the first thing that went to my mind before we went live is that you travel a lot. And my, my mind went, oh, wow, traveling and, and glamour. And, and I know it's I have a lot of friends who, who work for different organizations and traveling isn't especially now. I heard some of the challenges that they've had at Pearson. They're just really yeah. really stressful so can you tell us a little bit of background uh edward about yourself how you're affiliated you know who you are how you're affiliated with lighthouse your investment in in children's grief and anything else you want to share with us to to open the podcast all right so i am um sierra leonean by birth and so grew up in sierra leone with my family spent uh, uh time in the uk because my mom um and dad studied in the uk and so they sort of back and forth um and then um and then moved to canada over 20 years ago so my kids were all born here um so i'm an accountant by training and i had sort of worked with uh scotia bank i worked with an entertainment company alliance atlantis energy and gas and um and and now i'm with um with uh the Accor Hotel uh, group, which uh, manages the Fairmont uh, properties. Uh, so, you know, I, you know, sort of with my family doing our thing. Um, at that time, I had two kids. I had a son um, who was two years older uh, than his sister. 
And, you know, life was okay, you know, living, you know, as a family, schools, karate, swimming, you know, all the activities that you would, you would do with children attending piano recitals and all that. And then uh, one day I noticed that my daughter was, was sort of um, dragging her feet um, when she, she walked, you know, and she'd, I, I remembered clearly that we'd gone to, I uh, took her to swimming lessons and, and she was just not making an effort. And so I got really upset and I, I literally sat her down after the class and said, look, what are you doing? You know, you know, I'm paying for your classes. You need to make an effort. And then she, she looked at me and said, dad, I'm really trying. But at the, at that time, you know, she was, um, she was eight years old and, I thought she was just making an excuse. Fast forward a couple of months or a couple of weeks. Um, I, I had made breakfast for them and I'm a huge soccer fan. And so we were watching football on a Sunday morning in December of 2013. Made breakfast, sat down in, in, the, in, the, in the family room to watch uh, Liverpool play. And she couldn't use her right hand. Could not. She was eating with her left hand. Like, what's going on? So I immediately forgot about football and everything and bundled her in the car and we went to, um, to, um, to the walk-in clinic and she got examined and we were advised to go to, um, to Credit Valley because she was presenting um, symptoms of, of stroke. Like, eight-year-old stroke? What are you talking about? Anyways, took her to Credit Valley, was seen and... I, can't remember. Yes, we were seen, and then they they then transferred us by ambulance to sick kids, and so they did a CAT scan, and we got um, the doctors come in and say they saw something, and she needed to do an MRI. Did the MRI over that Sunday night, and Monday morning I was called into the doctor's office at Sick Kids, and we told this devastating news that my daughter had. DIPG, uh, which is a brain tumor on, on the brainstem, which is inoperable and it is terminal on diagnosis. So, so our whole world fell apart. You know, we had one minute we had this confident kid running around, and the next minute we were discussing this not not even the possibility, the reality that we were going to lose her. And so, fast forward six months later, we lost her. In the aftermath of, of that loss, you know, we, we were reeling from it. And somehow one of the um, community support workers at Credit Valley mentioned that, you know, there's this really great charity that um, you could, you, you know, you guys should, should, should sign up for uh, because at that time our, our son was, was uh, 10 years old and we were sort of worried about him. And so we signed up and at the time that we signed up, we decided that, you know what, this experience was too traumatic for us to try and deal with um, ourselves. So we signed up for some counseling, uh, which is a bit of a, an interesting one because both my wife and I are African and we don't do counseling. You know, Africans generally talk it through within the family and it's, it's close-knit. You don't bring other people into your 
your your issues, if you will. And so, but we decided that you know you know we'd done a little bit of research and we've had found out that people who had lost children were quite the probability of them splitting up was quite high. And so we decided that we were going to try and do counseling. So we went to a couple of sessions uh, whilst uh, we were exploring Lighthouse. Eventually, um, we attended a Lighthouse session because they start uh, the mirror of the, the school year. And so we, um, we then went in uh, to the Lighthouse program for our son and they said, well, we, there's a parents group. You can sit in whilst you wait uh, for Amar, my son. And so my wife and I sat in and honestly speaking, that was the, the, the start of a major change in, in how we looked at, 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 at grief, if you will, because we were able to interact with other families who were going through the same thing as we were. And then miraculously, there was another family attending whose daughter had had um, died of the same condition as my daughter. So it was almost like a kindred spirit kind of thing. Um, and so we felt at home. What happened was we, were, we went to Lighthouse to get support for Amar, and we end, ended up getting the support, getting support as well. Because after we attended about two sessions, I said to my wife, you know what, that's it. I'm not attending anymore. Uh, counseling sessions because, you know, you know, don't get me wrong, counselors have, you know, they're very valuable in the community. But for me personally, I didn't, I didn't connect because the counselor was coming from a theoretical base, if you will, and also communicating what her other patients had gone through. With our sessions at Lighthouse, the family groups, we were hearing directly from families who had gone through or were going through grief. And so that was more meaningful to me. And so that's how I got involved with Lighthouse. And so we attended Lighthouse groups every week, right through the school year for, I believe it was three or four years. And in the interim, my son then had, you know, one of those moments where he sat down and he said, look, you know, he said, oh, I have no one to look, to look, um, to, you know, I have no one to have my back or something like that. And so, you know, that was also a bit of a profound moment for us. And so, you know, over the years, my wife had wanted another child and I was like, come on, man, we have two, that's enough. And so we decided that we we're going to have another child. And so in 2017, um, we had a son called Zane. And so at that point we decided, okay, um, you know, we've, We've been attending Lighthouse for, I think it was three, four years. Well, three years, 2017. And so it was time to start making new memories. And so um, we ended our participation in the family groups. But what we did was we started to raise funds for, for Lighthouse. And so my wife had done a fashion show. We'd raised some money for Lighthouse and for Camp Uch that Amar also had benefited from. And so over the years, you know, I, I then got asked to serve on the Lighthouse board uh, last year. And so, you know, it, it has come full circle in the sense that I got a lot from Lighthouse and now I am trying, you know, to, to give back um, to that charity. It is an amazing charity. Lots of people don't know about it, uh, but 
you know, it's good that lots of people don't know about it because, you know, you're hoping that grief is, is uncommon, but it's not. And, and but it's also a, a, a great um, charity for, for ethnic individuals, if you will, or people of color who may not want to get into um, some counseling to, to get the support that they need. And my, my main goal was, was for the mental health of my son, of Amar. And, and, and if, you know, at the end of the day, even though we went in for him, we also got a lot out of it. And I'm really, really great, really grateful for that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Edward, especially for the continuum. That is, that is so logistical the way you played that out. <laughs> and coming from unimaginable loss, I have a 10-year-old daughter. I can't begin to fathom what you experienced, you and your family experienced. To circle back to a, a couple of points, I love how you brought forth the differentiation between grief counseling and the peer support model, the beautiful peer support model that we employ at, uh, at Lighthouse Group Grieving Children, where individuals alike experience to share. And that creates a sense of you know connection, community, uh, companionship, uh, maybe even understanding and appreciation of, of one's experiences. And, and also at, at Lighthouse, we've come to appreciate the fact that that the old adage of stages in grief is actually more of a continuum. We can experience all the quote-unquote differentiated stages that Elizabeth Cooper Ross put forth all at the same time. So, And, and that's why it works so well in, in process of supporting somebody who's grieving because you look at everything that's being expressed and, and shared. Uh, and I so appreciate, we so appreciate a number of perspectives that you bring, Edward, you know, personally, even culturally or, or diversity, diversity wise, and of course your expertise. And you mentioned something, a few things. I have so many questions for you. It's unreal. Fire <laughs> away. <laughs> you mentioned something in terms of, and I, I, I completely can attest to this. That's why I did this whole outreach program for two or three years in, within our organization. Many people don't know about it, especially within the diversity of, you know, of children's grief. Why do you think that is? And if if you would, you know, you could you could take it across the board, or you could bring it down to people of color. So, what are your thoughts about that, Edward? Um, you know, it's it's I to be honest with you, I think I'd mentioned this to you before at a conversation that we had. I, I felt lucky in in the sense that you know, if I look at the statistics, if you will, you know, uh, you know, I think um, the Peel region where I live. 38.5% of the population is, is a visible minority or are visible minorities. And Oakville, I think it's about 20%. Overall, Canada, about 25%. And when we went to Lighthouse, at that, at that time, you know, or within our group, we were the only people of color in the group, which is a bit of an interesting interesting anomaly if you will statistically because you'd expect to see more people and um, we didn't see a lot of facilitators that were black um, but you know if i take a step back you know I, I sort of wonder is it is it because of maybe how i presented myself that made people more comfortable to to give me the contact uh for lighthouse um what if i I presented in a slightly different way, you know, would I have been able to get that, that support? I don't know. Uh, but I have to wonder, you know, because, you know, death is not, is not just 
you know, within one set of uh, ethnic group, if you will. It's across the board. And so if you look at it, there should be more or an even split, if you will, um, of people. And so, and so I, I just wondered, you know, whether or not, because, you know, we, we presented ourselves slightly differently than what their experiences may have been with people of color. And so there was a little bit more comfort that, um, you know, we would, I don't know, <laughs> you know, it, it's an interesting one. And, you know, I'm also worried, sometimes I'm worried that people who make the referrals are worried about what donors might think, right? And so maybe that's the reason why referrals, you know, there's, you, you see that there are not very many referrals uh, to people of color because donors might not want to see that. Maybe, I don't know. I'm just postulating here. When you say uh, donors might not want to see that, is that from a... I'll just call it out. Is that a form of racism? I think so, because, you know, um, you know, it's, it's, but that's the thing, right? Because sometimes these people, the people who make the decisions assume that that's not what donors want to see. And I don't know whether, you know, it might be a little bit of a disconnect between the, the individuals who are referring people to the program, understanding that, you know, Lighthouse is not like that, you know, and, 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 you know, it is also good that now that Lighthouse has realized that, that they need more diversity. They need to sort of communicate that to all the groups that would potentially refer grieving families to them that look, anybody can come to Lighthouse. It doesn't matter. So I, I, I you know, I, I want to, th you know, I, one part of me says racism. The other part of me is like there might, may have been a disconnect between people referring uh, families to Lighthouse versus what, what the Lighthouse management team is actually open to. Thank you, Edward. And if we can maybe broaden the scope, what do you, th you mentioned something. You said Africans don't do counseling when it comes to grief. Can you expand on that statement? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. So Africans don't do, it's not just counseling. Mental health is a taboo subject in many African communities. Uh, you know, for me, as a Sierra Leonean, if you will, people don't talk about mental health. People were, if you have a, f a family member who has mental health issues, they don't talk about them. They go lock them up. Well, not lock them up, but they take, you know, they are not allowed to leave the house. You know, they take care of them and everything. So it's not like that, that they're neglected or, any, you know, they do take care of them, but they, they keep them within the household. Um, in cases where you have mental health in your family, that is public knowledge, the chances of people getting married is reduced because they, you know, the first thing, that you know, someone will ask is, don't they have a mental health issue in the family? You know, and and so and to the point where sometimes people don't even disclose that they've got a mental health issue until they're married, and then the you know the, the spouse discovers that there is something going on there that I didn't know, nobody told me about. So it, it's a it's a taboo subject. People don't talk about it. Um, you know, and everything that happens to you good or bad is there is always um 
there's always a reason for it, you know, in the sense that it's, you know, it's, it's God, um, you know, Allah, if you're Muslim or, you know, for the people who, who believe in the dark arts, it's witchcraft. Right. And, and so, and so that's the, you know, that's the comfort that people get instead of really talking about it. You know, some families are pretty good where, you know, you might not go to counseling, but you've got a strong family network that would, that you can talk things through. You know, we certainly do have that as well. So we were really lucky and, and not just family. We also had, uh, I have friends from school that live in Toronto. And so they were immense in their support. Um, you know, for the first six months after my daughter passed, I didn't think we cooked a meal in the house because we had, you know, these friends of ours who would, you know, just show up. In fact, my kitchen was taken over <laughs> by our friends uh, who just made sure that we were okay. And that's, that's, that's the amazing thing about the family and friend support. Is that a... Um... Is that common amongst African communities when there has been such a tragedy within a family that they they invest so much support and they take over the kitchen? Is that a common? Yeah, and, it is. is it? it is a common thing uh, in Sierra Leone where um, you have a death in the family and the whole village, if you will, you know, or the you know, not yeah, you know, will will rally around. Will literally spend weeks like you have. Like even for us, you have, you know, our friends would, would leave work and come to ours and spend the evening with us until sometimes midnight before they go home. And then, you know, that will always be somebody in the house, you know, to just make sure that we're okay. So, you know, in as much as we don't do grief counseling and stuff, but that family support, man, is, is amazing. And Edward, does that, do you think that supplements or in a way, well, just supplements the, not the need, but the direction towards children's grief support? I think it's a little bit of both because, you know, the moral support is there without a doubt. Obviously, there will be the, the odd. <laughs> it's amazing. Grief is, is the one thing that we don't do well with or death for something that is inevitable people are very uncomfortable around conversations about death. And so even some of our friends would still come to the house, but then there would be the, the comment about, oh, she's in a good place. Really, that's not what we want to hear. <laughs> you understand what I mean, right? You know, it's, it's almost like sometimes people are trying to find words when, you know, to say when you don't need to say anything. Just being there is... Is, is wonderful as it is, rather than trying to come up with a platitude to think to, 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 for us to hold on to. But that's not what we hold on to. We hold on to the fact that you're there with us. You don't have to say anything. And so sometimes the wrong words or you know, the choice of words are not what you want to hear. And so that can be a little bit jarring. It does help, but I think the peer support group it does complement that strong family support because you get to hear what other people are going through and how they're coping. And that, 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 you know, the combination of the two is, is, is really, really the, the key, if you will. And I appreciate that point. I think they don't need to be mutually exclusive, right? They complement one another. It's not one or the other. And 
each has its limitations because if you're only in peer support groups, then you might miss the support of a family or a community or communities. And if you only have communities and family support, eventually, quote unquote, people move on. And but grief doesn't have that timeline. Like, you know, you were speaking about three, four years of support. Grief doesn't have that timeline. And then, as I hear with a lot of people who are grieving, they end up feeling alone and isolated even within their community because the support isn't as what it once was. Yeah, understandable. Can I ask you about what you feel? And now you had a referral when your daughter died from Credit Valley Hospital, correct? Yes. Now, that's obviously that's a hospital and, and they know Lighthouse pretty well. What do you feel are some of the barriers to accessing children's grief support within communities who are black or identify as people of color? I think it's the lack of information. I think, um, you know, which is an interesting one because, you know, nobody has the time to go start looking for resources when you're going through a traumatic um, event as, as, as you would have in, in, in losing someone significant in your life. Uh, so so it's, it's the information. It, it's sometimes, you know, I think somebody, I can't remember exactly who, but they had been introduced to Lighthouse because somebody had left a brochure for them. So they'd gone to see them and they left a brochure. And in the course of a couple of weeks or months after, they were going through these things and found it. So I, I think it is information. And, and, and the other thing is also a lot of families are, you know, more male dominated and usually African males uh, don't want to talk about their grief. And, and, and so it becomes a little bit of a, an eggshell situation where the wife may be struggling or the kids are struggling, but because they don't want to upset, upset dad, they don't talk about it. But I, 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 I think the, the overriding objective should be the mental health and well-being of your children. And, and I, I would have done anything to um, to to ensure that Amara was okay, which I, which we which we did. Now, as a a black man, a father, and a family, how do we navigate those kinds of dynamics where it's it's more patriarchal? And I see it in in the middle stream communities that I support, and that that's my background. Very patriarchal, and it everything goes through the father or the man. How do we, how do we bridge those? How do we connect with that? How do we, you know, be able to bring that to those kind of dynamics? How do you think? Well, you know, the one thing, you know, in, in as much as I, I, you know, as I, I did say that, you know, our, our communities are, are more patriarchal. You know, we do we do have very strong women um, in, in those families, and and even within the Middle Eastern families, if you will, I had I have. A Pakistani friend who would tell me that, look, you know, when our front door is closed, my mom is the ruler of the house. The minute that door opens, uh, my dad becomes the ruler. But what, you know, and so women still have a very strong influence, if you will. And, and so and because of their nurturing ability, I think, you know, if we get try and get as many mothers and wives involved and aware of the program, and the and then have conversations with with the dads and fathers about the importance of ensuring that their kids 
in a mentally safe place. Because I think, um, you know, the, the Grief Symposium, they had some, you know, some stats around um, kids who had experienced grief and, and, and you know, high incidence of, of dropouts in school, drug use and all, you know. And so those are things that we should be sharing as potential impacts if, if, if our children are not um, supported. And, and we all want the best for our kids. So the way that I, I would say it is, is go to Lighthouse for your kids. Spend one hour in the family group. And if you don't like it, then, of course, there's no obligation for you to come back. But I, I honestly believe that if you go spend one hour in a family group at Lighthouse, you're definitely going to be coming back. <laughs> Well, I, 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 we very much appreciate that testimony because you're a service recipient and it's at no charge, of course, Edward, yes, yes. Uh, in that regard. So thank you. Thank you for that insight and that perspective. You know, I, I appreciate, Edward, how you are uh, relating grieving and grief, which are not necessarily the same thing, to mental health, right? And there's a, there's a great deal of awareness being built now around mental health aspects uh, as affected by a loss and, and grieving. Now, that I think that's a, also a really important outreach approach, which I, I suspect you're involved in, in bringing the awareness of mental health to demographics of peoples that may not correlate mental health with grief and grieving. Can you speak to that and maybe some of the work you're doing with Danielle Lobo, one of our uh, esteemed colleagues, and especially as it engages African communities and people of color. Yeah, Danielle and I have, have had uh, some conversations. We haven't really done anything as yet, but one of the things that I have volunteered to do is to uh, speak at um, some of these outreach events. And so, you know, once our calendars line up, if you will, um, I'm in Toronto or Mississauga, then we can get that started. But I am open to to speaking up at these events in terms of, you know, being an African male who's lost a child and have gone and, and sought help, um, you know, first through counseling, which, you know, I had to do to, you know, just, you know, and then discovering that uh, the peer support uh, route worked better for myself and my family. And, you know, the, the overriding objective was for, for, was for Amar, you know, I think I've said this a number of times already, but it, it, it's funny because since, since Amira's passing, I've sort of been a, a bit philosophical about stuff and I came across an interesting quote from a journalist called Norman, Norman Cousins. And he had said, death is not the greatest loss in life. The greatest loss is what dies inside us as while we live and that's the thing because a lot of people suffer a loss in, the, in their families or in their lives and they just shut down after that they keep living but you know there's the light has gone and, and so for us it was being able to get up in the morning and being there for Omar ensuring that you know we got him ready for school that we you know we had you know, we made life as normal for him, uh, you know, as, as it was before Amira, Amira passed. So, so 
more than anything, the, the driver for us was for Amman. And I'm hoping that a lot of, of ethnic moms and dads would, 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 would take that step back and, and realize that, hang on, this is not about you. You know, this is about your children and their mental health for the long term. And trust me, you also will benefit from it. Well said, Edward. Well said. And to bring this to even, not to be too grandiose, but to bring this to another level, you know, we're very fortunate. These podcasts are going international. I checked the demographics and we're reaching all over the world. Can you speak to, and I just, this is just to add on to what you just spoke to in the advocacy of uh, not just Lighthouse, but children's grief support for, you know, for African communities and people of color and, and what have you. Can you speak to the importance of it from a, from a child development, but from a family unit? You mean, you know, you, you recognized, I think the stats are extra astronomically high, 50, 60, 70% of marriages, you know, dissolve because of uh, a child loss. Can you speak to it from even a societal aspect within African communities of the importance of acknowledging and having support, you know, quote unquote, professional support for a, a loss related to death of a child or a parent as experienced by a, by a child? Um, you know, it's, it's, this is an interesting one. I, I guess there, there might be a couple of perspectives to this in the sense that I, I guess in the modern African context, you know, there might be a lot of marriage breakups as a result of, of a loss, but you do still have a significant number of, of families that stay together. Uh, on the other hand, you know, there are also families that stay together that then have to suffer the consequences of that loss. So one spouse may, may be depressed and do not and does not seek help for for that. There might be addiction issues around alcoholism. I think for us, uh, it's more alcoholism than, you know, trying to drown your sorrows. And, and, you know, the marriage is still intact in theory, but, it, it, you know, there might be, you know, people might be living separate lives. And then you also have the situations where you do have a really strong um, family support that pulls you out of, of, of the abyss, if you will. So, so it's... You know, the, the outcomes, honestly speaking, are not dissimilar from experiences with non-African communities. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's the commonalities of grief. Yeah. You know, it transcends yeah. ethnicity, language, food. It transcends yeah. everything, right? That's, yeah. It transcends that in, in that respect. Now, shifting gears a little bit, uh, my parents came here 100 years ago as refugees and uh, as as immigrant my mother was an immigrant my dad was a refugee and they experienced an enormous amount of racism and so they don't trust social service organizations they're actually pushed back a lot on me to be involved with lighthouse with the hospice part of care organizations i do work with because they just they're traumatized by the by the racism and, and they don't trust can you speak a little bit edward to the possibility of that demographic of people, you know, people who come and experience marginalization, racism, uh, especially who are black and people of color. And then they're seeing these organizations that are providing, not just Lighthouse, but that are providing grief support at their most incredibly vulnerable times, the death of a child or the death of a parent. And how some of the barriers to 
Well, maybe we'll just start with that. You know, that's that's loaded in itself. The those experiences and the barriers they might create in accessing and trusting, not just accessing and being aware, but to trust other organizations that are predominantly, you know, they look white. They're they're predominantly white. To be trust them to to support them in their most vulnerable times. Yeah, you know, that's a difficult one if you don't have people who look like you who've gone through the program and can attest to it. You know, so I'm, you know, Lighthouse, I know, has had, a, you know, a number of, of, of ethnic families that have, have been, that have participated. It, you know, it, it's, it's, I think it's incumbent on those families and also on my family to speak about the great benefit that we, 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 we got from attending at these programs. And, and that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm volunteering with Danielle to do that outreach. Uh, so that somebody who may have doubts, um, about, you know, opening up, uh, you know, with, with a social service, uh, delivery, uh, organization, if you will, can feel comfortable that, you know what, this guy has gone through this. And I can see, well, I'm hoping that he has gotten something really positive, positive out of it. And, you know, let me try it and see. At the end of the day, it's, you try it. I, I would say the, 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 the good thing is that, you know, you're not obligated to stay for a whole year or God knows how long. Try it and then decide whether it's the right thing for you. But don't just use, you know, a his, yes, historical context should always inform what we do. But I think the times are changing. You know, if, if, if you want to get involved with Lighthouse, Dig into, into the strategy, dig into the charter, look at what a lighthouse is all about. Look at the diversity effort that we're making to reach out to, to different, um, different types of families, if you will. And then, and then make your decision, but don't just say, well, this is my, this is the history of it. And I'm not going to engage. You have to do your own research and, and, and then, and then try it out and see. Yeah. We're very fortunate. Uh, Edward, to have you, right? You know, in in our in our midst. But there's a number of children's grief support organizations across the country that may not have a you, and they may not be able to have you know the the reach and the trust building and what have you. What can we say to them in terms of how they can go about this? Do they need to recruit someone like you? I mean, it's incredibly like just being straight up. It's incredibly rare to have someone like yourself as articulate, as eloquent as you are, as an experienced, bereaved parent, and then to give back into an organization where you are, you know, volunteering your time, that's exceptionally rare and, and privileged in many ways, and the privilege in the sense of having your presence. What about for those organizations and those pockets of organizations that don't have a you? How the, can they go about it? Well, it, it's, I would say speaking to, speaking to people, no preconceived ideas you know yeah i i i think yeah there's a um there's a story this is an old story i'm sure you've heard it before where this child um i believe was either from india or from a non-white country and was in class and somebody had lost an item in class and so they decided they were going to speak to every child to ask whether or not they had taken this item and this kid from India 
her background was that when you talk to an elder, you don't look them in the eye. And because she couldn't look the teacher in the eye, they believed that she had taken this item only for them to discover that it was somebody else who had. And so the, the key thing is if you, if, you reach, if you want to reach out to an ethnic, if you want to be ethnically diverse in, your, in the families that you service, you have to understand who you're going to be interacting with and then prepare to interact with them in a manner that does not belittle them, that, that takes account of their ethnic cultural practices, if you will. You know, it's little things like, you know, you, if you walk into a, a Muslim, you know, gathering, if you will, where you don't shake hands with women. Why, you know, you have to know that and, and wait until someone makes the first move. I know it's the polite thing to do, you know, to put your hand out, you know, but if, if you don't understand those little cultural nuances, then you're already starting off from a wrong position. So it's really trying to understand those little cultural nuances and then, and then hopefully try and, 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 and reflect that when you, when you engage with these communities. And so the, the, the perception then becomes, well, these guys are taking an interest in terms of learning how we interact. And so it becomes more comfortable for them to reach out. And, 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 and that's one piece, but also ensuring that, you know, you take the time, like, uh, you know, if you have somebody who has a difficult name to pronounce, you know, practice it and then ask them, how do you pronounce your name rather than butchering the name? And then you're starting off from a, from a disadvantaged position in the first place, because you've already isolated that or not isolated, alienated that person by pronouncing their name wrong. And so how do you expect them to be open to you if, if you have started off by, by pronouncing their name differently? So those least, it's, uh, it's a lot of little things that mean a lot that we have to understand. And so it, it's really trying to do that. And that resonated so strongly with me, Edwards, <laughs> you know, like with a name like Rami Shami, which has been quote unquote, just, you know, just butchered, as you mentioned, yeah. throughout my life for non-trauma informed word, I can very much resonate with that. And I felt some of the most important aspects of building trust is being able to pronounce my name, right? Yeah. Or as you mentioned, which is the operative word in a culturally humble approach to learn how my name is pronounced. And you mentioned about, you know, Islamic communities and, and shaking hands with women and what have you. You mentioned the term learner, and that's so important when it comes to engaging all the diversity of communities to have them teach us. Because there's many Muslim women that I've, I've shaken the hands with, but they led. They, you know, and I love how you said that, like they lead. And that's an important aspect that uh, we employ at, at Lighthouse for Gaming Children, this culturally humble approach. We learn from others and we let them lead us in how they are expressive in their personal culture and then especially how that relates to how they are grieving or engaging in a, in a death-related yeah. loss. I'm really excited because this has even been brought nationally by the Canadian Alliance for Grieving Children and Youth, which is uh, CAGSI. That's also their, their metamorphosis of bringing these aspects of diversity and cultural humility to the masses uh, across the country. Because unfortunately, 
children's grief support, except for some of the work that you do, that I've done, that uh, Daniela is doing, and some of the other organizations like Caxi and and, uh, and what have you, it's still marginalized. It's still the minority who have access to children's yeah. grief support. And we're trying to do everything we can to reach those because you, you said it so brilliantly. It is a mental health aspect. And you know how that cascades and becomes intergenerational in trauma. Even some of the great work that's being done by Andrea Warnick is in bridging those aspects of diversity and accessibility to uh, yeah. to children's grief support. I agree. And, and you know, and you mentioned Caxi and honestly speaking, Caxi has an, a, an amazing ED who is going to hopefully uh, uh, get children's uh, grief support nationwide, if you will. And, and there's no better person to lead Caxi at the moment. <laughs> well, let's put her. Let's let's put her out there. Who is she? <laughs> <laughs> That's Deirdre Thomas. Awesome, yes. awesome. <laughs> Wonderful uh, speaking with you, uh, Edward. Anything else you'd like to share with us or put out there that we uh, that literally internationally people can? Yeah, I'll just let me just sidewind this. Is um, a number of podcasts ago, I did a podcast with uh, Nancy Housen and uh, for. Uh, individuals with Down syndrome. And it's not just the professionals that we're trying to reach. You know, a professional heard this podcast and sent it to a family and they related, right? So we at Lighthouse for Grieving Children, and I so appreciate the support of Candace Ray and Deidre at the time and now Anne, is to create um, a medium with which we can reach people, to take the experiences of people like yourself and reach others, Right, not necessarily on a professional level, because we're never going to be able to touch all the organizations like Credit Valley to bring in awareness. Because people die in car accidents, people die in school shootings, and they don't often necessarily have a Credit Valley in there. Yeah. But if we can have a medium with which we can engage people, that's that's the operative of the podcast. So, anything you want to leave us with that can? Uh... Um, yeah, a couple of things. You know, I think one of the great things that we're doing. Um, with Lighthouse is we are, we, you know, we have a good um, relationship with the school boards, um, you know, where, of course, children go to school. And so if you're they're suffering a loss, the schools um, then provide, um, you know, whatever material that they need to take home to families to, um, to connect with Lighthouse. I think um, that's a great initiative that we're doing. And, and one of our board members has been instrumental in, um, in ensuring that we get, we continue to remain engaged with, with schools. Um, the other piece is is around recruiting facilitators. I I, I think um, the you know the more ethnically diverse uh, group of facilitators that we we engage, you know, people come in and they see someone like them who's gone through the same thing, feel more comfortable, you know. But then that is that in itself is a challenge because you know how many people from an ethnically diverse background, it would be willing to be trained as a facilitator to explore the depth of their grief as well. So in order to, to be able to help people, you have to be able to facilitate, you have to be able to explore your own grief. And I think I mentioned this to you, you know, when we were at Light, Lighthouse, we had a facilitator that was amazing. He had gone through traumatic loss as well. And so he could, he could see himself in us. He could see himself in the various stages that he was with the families that attended that group. And, and because he had gone through that, 
he, he's been, you know, he was able to pull people in at very interesting points in our conversations. You could see that, you know, those individuals, including myself and my wife, you know, you get engaged and then you see how other people react to it. You, you, you also understand that, that, that people are going through or have gone through the same thing as you. And, and, and so those facilitators are rare and, and, you know, somehow we've got to be able to find ethnically diverse facilitators who are comfortable to explore their grief. And, and just to add a little bit to that, or may not to add, but to compliment that, is it important or how important is it that the person who's bringing the awareness or providing the support, not just understands and appreciates the other diversities and cultures, but even looks the part and can speak the part? You know, that's an interesting question because for me personally, I, I believe that in order to get that, that critical mass of people from an ethnically diverse background to, to attend Lighthouse, I think we have to have some um, ethnically diverse facilitators. But if once we have established a reputation that we're open to ethnically diverse people and people in the community trust us, then it doesn't really matter because they know that, you know, we're going to be culturally sensitive to them. But I think that initial foray into being ethnically diverse, we need to have people that, that look like our, our families. But then in the next, I think maybe five, in five years, it should matter because I, I believe we would have developed enough of a track record for people to trust that we're doing the right thing. And a couple of times you mentioned the trust piece, Edward. I think it really comes down to that trust piece. I think a lot of accessibility to children's grief support uh, or the barriers to accessibility to children's grief support is a lack of trust. Who are you? What are you doing? We don't understand it. You know, you don't look like us. You don't talk like us. You can't even pronounce our names properly. And so the barriers are, are yeah. present. Absolutely. Well, the great thing is that Lighthouse has recognized there's a need for that. And we've we have included that in our strategy and we are investing in that strategy and we're trying to execute on that. Excellent. Excellent. Fine, sir. Really appreciate your, your time today. Folks, this has been the Lighthouse Beacon Podcast. A big thank you to Edward Jones Stanley for his insights and, you know, even the vulnerability with which to share an unimaginable loss and from New York. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Remy. Oh, wonderful. So, folks, uh, please stay safe out there. Although COVID has subsided, I don't think we're necessarily done from this pandemic. If you'd like more information about our organization, just visit us online on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, or see our website at www.lighthousegriefsupport.org. For more information about CAGSI and what we're doing nationally or what's being done nationally for children's grief, visit www.grievingchildrencanada.org. Dot org. My name is Rami Shami and stay safe, everyone. Mm -hmm.